Direct from the astronomy capital of Australia comes the Astro Podcast. An irregular series of interviews with interesting astro people about the projects and passions that keep their eyes to the sky. This podcast is proudly sponsored by itelescope.net. iTelescope is the world's premier telescope on demand service. You can follow the night whether you're an amateur or a professional scientist. iTelescope is offering Astro Podcast listeners a great deal. If you go to the itelescope.net site or click on the link on the Astro Podcast site and uh, purchase credits, you will get a massive 25% bonus. Just use the code ASTRO, A-S-T-R-O, when you're purchasing your credits. It's an amazing deal, so take it up now. We'd like to thank itelescope.net for being a proud supporter of Astro Podcast. Hi, Alison here from Astro Podcast, and I'm here with a special guest today, Richard Lane from Concepcion (laughs) University in Chile, um, who is an Australian. And Richard, you're doing your postdoc over there? Yeah, this, that's right. This is my, my first postdoc outside my PhD. So uh, I, I applied for jobs all over the world, as you do when you finish your PhD. And uh, there was a couple of places that, that offered me jobs. One was here and one was in uh, Shanghai. And my wife and I decided that we'd rather live in Chile than in Shanghai because of the culture shock would be less here, we hoped. So, yeah, so here we are. All right. And um, how we usually go is that we, we talk about how you got into astronomy, and you've got a really great story, I think, of how you got into astronomy, a completely different one anyway. Um, and then we'll, we'll go on to talking about uh, what you're working on, which is also very interesting. So uh, let's, let's a brief rundown of um, how you decided to get into astronomy. All right. Well, it's a little bit of a long story, but I'll try and make it quick. It's uh, basically I was working just, you know, straight out of school, working uh, in, I kind of just fell into working in, in a bar because my brother worked in a bar and I didn't know really what I wanted to do. And uh, I've spoken to lots of people who are in the same kind of boat and don't know what they want to do when they're, you know, in their 40s even. So I wasn't alone, but I just decided that working in a bar was a, a something to do in the meantime. And when I would, had done that for, I don't know how long exactly, but seven years or something, I was 24 then. And I thought, well, I'm kind of bored of doing this. I was a bit on autopilot every day at work and, you know, just serving people in a bar. And well, in the end, I ended up being one of the managers of the of the bar. And I don't know, I just, I basically just got, got sick of doing that and decided that I'd do something else. So I got the, the university's admissions guide book and had a look through that. And I've always been interested in science and because my, my father was a, a microbiologist until he retired. So I had a bit of a background there. And so I just decided that, well, basically, I was looking through the UAC guide, and and this this uh, this thing jumped out at me, which was a degree in astronomy and astrophysics at Macquarie University in Sydney. So I thought I'd apply. That's basically yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> All right. So um, you you got in through adult entry, or like, um, or did you have to do a pre course or something like that to cope with the the maths and physics? Well, I, I didn't actually do any pre-course, but I, I, what I did do is that Macquarie University has a, a – well, I, at the time I was looking around for partly Macquarie University 
grabbed me because I'd heard, at least through the grapevine, but with no other information apart from that, that that Macquarie University was a good place to go if you're a mature age student because they have a lot of, well, basically they looked, they looked sort of favorably upon mature age students, which is something that other universities, well, may or may not do, but I'd heard that Macquarie did. And uh, so, yeah, that was part of the reason as well as to, to apply there. So when I got there and I thought, what am I going to do? I haven't done any, any schoolwork, any science, any maths, anything for about seven years. And uh, so I didn't really know how I'd go, with, especially with the maths and the physics particularly, because at high school I really didn't enjoy physics much. So I, there was a really good thing at, the, at uh, Macquarie University. They have a thing called the Numeracy Center. And the Numeracy Center is for first-year maths and physics students or anyone doing a maths or physics course to, to basically uh, help you through your first year of, of, uh, of maths and physics courses. So I, I spent a lot, a lot of time in the Numeracy Center and the people there helped me a lot. They really helped me a lot. And there was a, a, a bit of a struggle for the first little while. But the, the, what I decided to do to begin with is that I decided to, instead of taking on a full-time course, a full-time load, at, um, for the first six months, or for the first year, I did it part-time. So I only did two courses in the first semester just to ease myself into it because I thought it was going to be tough. And it turned out it wasn't as tough as I thought it would be, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you did that, and then you decided to focus on something. Um, what did you choose to focus on, and... Uh, what did you give the world with your <laughs> PhD? Well, okay, so the, the, the reason I chose to do what I did was was because of one man, I'll have to give him credit for this, a guy named Geraint Lewis, who's a, a Welsh guy who now works at Sydney University. And at the time when I was doing my undergrad at Macquarie, he was working for the Anglo-Australian Observatory. So he, uh, well, I did a, a winter scholarship with him just for two weeks, and it was really interesting, and I really enjoyed it. And it was this particular thing was on gravitational lensing, which is the, uh, the basically the bending of light by large gravitational objects like galaxies and clusters of galaxies. And so the light from a distant object gets focused by the gravity, the same as if the light was passing through a glass lens. It gets focused in the same way. But the gravity is what does the bending, not the, not the glass of the, of the lens. So I, this was what I, I just did this for two weeks and I thought it was great. So then uh, Geraint at the end of the two weeks said, look, if you, at the end of your, uh, uh, your undergrad, if you feel like doing an honours year, which is the year you do after your undergrad if you want to keep going, then, uh, then basically look me up. Um, and so at the end of it all, I did, I took me four years to do my undergrad. And at the end of the, the four years, I decided that I, I did want to keep going and I did want to do an honors year. So I looked him up and he was at Sydney Uni by then. He'd, he'd moved from the Anglo Australian Observatory to Sydney Uni. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, he basically gave me these two papers to read, two, you know, scientific published, published papers from, from two different journals on two completely different subjects. One was gravitational lensing and the other was, uh, galactic evolution, basically the evolution of the Milky Way. So I read them both and I thought, well, I've already looked at a bit at gravitational lensing and I liked it, but this other thing really, this other, this, this, uh, evolution of the Milky Way stuff really interests me. So yeah, I decided to go, to go for that. And that's what, that's what, uh, took me down that path. Right. Let's have a look at what you're now working on. Uh, well, actually, we should talk about what it's like a little bit just to work in another country as well. I've had 
interviews with people that have come here to Australia, but I haven't actually talked to anyone, any Australians that have gone to work somewhere else. So give us a, a, a brief overview of what it's like to move to a country where they don't speak English outside of the university and how you're, how you're coping with that. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, that is the interesting bit. That is really the interesting bit. I mean, why my wife and I decided to move here to Chile instead of to, to Shanghai was partly because we thought that Spanish would be a lot easier to learn than, than uh, Mandarin or Cantonese. I forget which it is that they speak in, in Shanghai. I think it's Mandarin. And the, the, uh, we just basically, well, you know, move here and you just you struggle is what you do <laughs> to begin. That's the first thing you do is you struggle. And uh, we got a little bit lucky that, uh, well, we got very lucky in a lot of ways, but my, my boss, uh, his name is Tom Richtler. He's German and he's been living here for a long time. He's, and he happened to be in Germany at the time when we got here. So he said, well, when you first get here, I won't be there. So you can, you can stay at my place and, you know, leave the keys with the, 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 the you know, with the, the security person for the building and, and you can, uh, you can just stay at my place until you find a, find a place of your own to live in if, as long as it doesn't take you more than two weeks. So we did. We just stayed there for two weeks and we, we met a girl who happens to be the girlfriend of one of my workmates, her, another postdoc, Rory, who, who works here. And, uh, and she speaks very good English and obviously perfect Spanish because she's she's Chilean, mm-hmm. and she helped us a lot. She she helped us a, a huge amount with uh, with helping us find a uh, find a place to live. She she took us with uh, she went with us to to look at you know flats and things to, when we were looking for a place to to live. And then about I think it was two days before, or even possibly the day before my boss got back from Germany, we had a place to move into. So we moved in the day before he got back. So it just worked amazingly well. Oh, that's good. So <laughs> it was it was it was kind of lucky, and and she's she was fantastic for those two weeks. She was absolutely fantastic, um, and. And uh, since then, the, the the struggle of the language has become less and less. I mean, you get used to, you know, miming a lot for a while until you can at least be understood by people. And one, I mean, one difficult, really quite difficult thing about, about moving to Concepcion was that uh, it's not a tourist city at all. So they're not, not used to, the, you know, the locals here are just not used to speaking to foreigners trying to speak Spanish. So, you know, you, you think you're saying exactly what you want to say but they just don't have a clue what you're saying because your accent is so crazy <laughs> so it's it's interesting but it's but it's really really worth it i mean i i wouldn't have it any other way we're really enjoying ourselves here and uh it's just it's a fantastic experience i mean there's nothing i can't say anything anything better than that it's it's an amazing experience oh fabulous all right so let, let's get on to what you're actually working on now and yeah. you're going to have to lead the way a fair bit talking about the science, but we do have people out there, and I'm looking at you, Peter V, that wants uh, some science in the podcast. So, <laughs> all right, lay some science on us. <laughs> okay, no problem. Well, I mean, now, well, okay, I'll, I'll start with what I did for my PhD because yep. the, what I was doing for the for the honors stuff is, as I just mentioned before, was that. I was uh, doing uh, the evolution of the Milky Way and and how okay so here's the sciencey part yeah. <laughs> how this what I was doing was how 
what I was looking at was uh, computer simulations of how the uh, if you if you get a, a Milky Way potential, which is the, the gravitational potential of what we 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 uh, understand the Milky Way looks like, just gravitationally, um, and it's a static potential, doesn't evolve in time, which is not very realistic, but it's it's good for an honors type you know course for one year, and then you get little dwarf galaxies, which are uh, plumber spheres, which is a distribution of stars that's quite dense in the center and follows a, a plumber distribution. It's called based on a uh, a paper from nineteen. 11, which describes this this particular distribution density distribution, um, and you throw these in the computer simulation. You throw these these objects at the Milky Way in different ways from different directions, and you see what happens. See what how they break up and where the where all the stars end up. So then, from going on from that, um, that was uh, then looking uh, from into my PhD. I started looking at the actual Milky Way and actual objects that are in orbit around the Milky Way. So doing a similar kind of thing, but looking at real objects that are actually in orbit around the Milky Way and, and breaking up because of the, the gravitational effects of the Milky Way. And one of those things, uh, one of the most famous objects like that is the th- a thing called the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy, which I actually had nothing to do with, really. But um, there's another object called the Monoceros Ring, Monoceros being a, a, a constellation in the sky, mm-hmm. uh, towards the opposite direction from the from the galactic center. And that uh, this Monoceros Ring is in the plane of the Milky Way disk, so it, but it's outside the disk of the Milky Way. So you can imagine like a big donut surrounding the disk of the Milky Way, I guess. Um, and this thing is still not very well understood. Uh, in fact, uh, me and collaborators in Germany and, and my old supervisor in Australia, Geraint, he, we've written a paper recently uh, which is not quite accepted yet, uh, but it's going to be published quite soon, about this object and what it could be. And it's probably although not definitely, uh, an old dwarf galaxy that was caught in uh, the, the tidal field of the Milky Way and, and destroyed by the, yeah, by the tidal forces of the Milky Way's uh, potential, gravitational potential. So that's, that's kind of where that went. And then I did some work also on globular clusters, which are large clusters of stars, fairly spherical clusters of stars um, that are something like, depending on how massive they are, can be anything from 10,000 to a million times the mass of the sun, I guess. Um, and, and looking at the, the dark matter content of those things based on the, the dynamics of the stars that, that are in them. And these things are, are pressure supported, which basically means that they, there's no rotation to, that's supporting the, the size. I mean, the, the, ob- the stars within them are in orbits that are, uh, well, various different kinds of orbits, but the reason that they're spherical is the stars fall down towards, on very elliptical orbits, down through, near the center of the object, of the, the cluster, and then around the center and then back out again. So that gives it the whole thing its shape. Um, and looking at the dark matter content of those things, because uh, dark matter is one of these things that, despite what you might hear, that, that uh, in the, you know, sort of in the, the mainstream media, there's actually a surprising number of people who don't, don't believe due to various reasons some of those people don't just don't like the idea so a lot of them have good evidence that that shows them or that that makes them believe that they that dark matter doesn't exist and uh so that's that's why i was looking at that and then that sort of turned into what i'm doing now which after doing my phd i applied for several jobs 10 probably and uh my boss here tom rickler he 
uh, he's working on uh, looking at a similar thing to what I was doing with the globular clusters, but instead of doing it with globular clusters, uh, looking at large elliptical galaxies, which are far outside the Milky Way, um, and looking at these things, uh, but instead of looking at individual stars and the motions of individual stars uh, to to work out basically their mass and you know whether they require dark matter, uh, is using globular clusters within those galaxies outside you know those large elliptical galaxies using those. Uh, globular clusters as because I mean because these things are so far away the globular clusters just look like faint star-like objects single point sources and you can look at those and and uh, basically measure the mass of the of the elliptical galaxy and things using those and so that's basically where I'm going now okay all right so Dark matter. <laughs> yeah. you, you did point out. I mean, just recently there was a, uh, a study that came out that basically it didn't really prove anything new. It just said, you know, that there was they couldn't find any dark matter within the solar system, which is not anything new because they haven't found any really within the Milky Way either. <laughs> I just wanted to go back and touch on. You were saying that people don't believe in dark matter itself because they don't like the idea of it. But give us uh, an idea of why you know that it exists or, you know, I, I know that we factor dark matter into calculations, but can you give us a an overview <laughs> of why? Because this is something basically that I want to know as well, is that I understand that it's it's a requirement, like you said, you know, required, but what makes us think that it's definitely there and not, that we just don't understand gravity as well as we thought we did? That's seriously a, an amazingly deep <laughs> question. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, the, the original reason that, well, one of the original reasons that we, we think dark matter, we need dark matter, is to explain how uh, the rotations of galaxies. If you look at, well, originally it was spiral galaxies. If you look at spiral galaxies, um, they're rotating too fast for the matter that you see, only the visible matter, the stars and the gas, uh, to hold them together. So there must be this extra mass that you can't see that holds them together because if the only mass that was that existed in those uh, galaxies was the stuff that you can see, then this, the rotational velocity of the, the galaxy should make the whole thing fly apart, basically. That's, that's the very short version yep. um the, the slightly more the slightly more sciencey version is that the rotation curve flattens out at large radii and so if the as you if you look at the the velocity dispersion which is the disper the if you look at uh all the stars or all the matter um in bins so in in say in in a small in small pieces out from the center so uh in the, in the inner regions all the matter is moving quite quickly because there's a lot of mass contained in there uh, in, in the core of the galaxy. Like there's the, the, the large black hole generally exists there and there's just a lot of stars, a lot of mass. So the, the objects in this core are moving very fast. So the velocity dispersion is quite large and then it, and then it drops off a little bit as you go out. Uh, further out from the from the core, but at some level it it flattens off, and so the velocity dispersion stays con constant the further out you go. Now, if you're looking at an object that it only contains the mass that you can see, then what you should see is the velocity dispersion dropping off slowly, eventually to zero, and that you just don't see that. 
So that's one. That's the original, basically the original reason that dark matter was was noticed that we needed it. The interesting thing is that 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 has grown into into a huge, huge, huge part of astronomy now, where dark matter is only. Oh, sorry, uh, the visible matter is only thought to be about four percent of all the matter or all of the energy, at least, all of the energy density of the universe is only about 4% what we can see. And dark matter is about 25% of what uh, of the rest of it. And so the, this uh, this is a little bit of a problem in some ways. And what, what a lot of people have worked on over quite a long time now uh, is computer simulations of the formation of... Uh, of uh, structure, basically, which is, you know, galaxies, groups of galaxies, clusters of galaxies, and then clusters of clusters of galaxies, so building up from small objects up to larger and larger things, and computer simulations of of dark matter and how it behaves and how that ends up looking like the universe that we see. Um, the, one of the best examples of that is a thing called the Millennium Simulation. If anyone wants to go and have a, a look it up, then you can find movies of the Millennium Simulation online, I'm sure. In fact, I'm sure, yeah, I know you can. Um, so, and that ends up with this cold dark matter. If you if you use warm or, or hot dark matter, so which means that the dark matter... Uh, when I say warm or hot, it means that the temperature, basically that means the velocity of the dark matter particles is, uh, uh, well, is increasing from cold to hot. Uh, and what we found works best, and I say we in general, I don't mean me at all. Um, <laughs> what we found uh, is that if you look at the dark matter as cold to begin with, so it has no, effectively no initial temperature motion, then you get a structure in the end of your 14 billion year simulation um, in the computer, then you, you get a structure that looks very similar to what we see in the universe um, observationally. But the problem with that is that there are, there's, there's lots of, lots of little problems. And uh, one of them is that in those simulations, you find many, many, many smaller clumped, Objects, which are they called, are called dark matter halos. You get many, many small dark matter halos that are the mass of, say, dwarf galaxies. So I don't know, a, a tenth or a hundredth of the mass of the Milky Way. And there's there's two orders of magnitude, so ish, um, too many of these things to actual dwarf galaxies that we see in the, in the in the universe. So that's one problem with this this whole cold dark matter thing. There and there are various other ones. There are um, some dwarf galaxies seem to have huge quantities of dark matter for no apparent reason. Um, and some ellipt large elliptical galaxies seem to have much, much, uh, a much smaller quant content of dark matter than, than they should. So there's, at, the, at the large scales, this, this dark matter idea works well. But in smaller scales, it, there, are, there are some problems. And uh, those problems are still under investigation, and that's exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. All right. Is there anything you can tell us about what you're what you're doing at the moment, or you know what you found? Yeah. Um, in the in the well, at the moment in the the globular cluster things that I was doing for my PhD thesis, the, uh, there was various people in the in the scientific community working on this these these objects and finding that they that the velocity dispersion profiles of globular clusters also flattened off at at large radius, which means that there must be some kind of invisible matter there. And it turns out that that, well, I mean, I could not, for, I, I looked at 10 different globular clusters uh, that are in orbit, oh, excuse me, in orbit around the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. 
and looked looked at the their velocity dispersion profiles of the stars out to larger radius than anyone else had at least for several of the the same clusters and didn't find this at all just i just couldn't replicate that and so i don't quite understand what was really going on in these other people's results but i couldn't replicate the results i found that there was no requirement for dark matter in this in these clusters at all um now in the newer stuff that i've been doing um the well, it's, basically, it's very interesting. The, the, there's lots of different kinds of elliptical galaxies out there, and what's really tricky is finding them, finding one uh, elliptical galaxies that are either isolated enough so that they haven't had any interaction with another galaxy, which heats the in, the whole system up, um, because the interactions, uh, well, I mean, you can imagine yep. a collision between two galaxies uh, introduces a lot of energy into the whole thing, mm-hmm. the whole system, which heats the whole thing up, and which gives you uh, what appears to be dark matter because the whole system isn't actually in equilibrium anymore. So that's that's it's tricky to find uh, uh, elliptical galaxies that are that are in the state of equilibrium. So isolated ones, and there's not many around, but that's what you need. You need isolated ones that have been sitting there for a long time doing nothing. Um, the other thing you can do, and this is something that I'm actually applying for some funding. I'm applying for three years of funding to stay here and keep working on this because it's interesting stuff. Um, and uh, the what really you need is uh, a, a, a survey of a whole lot of galaxies in a in a, a similar environment, so that you don't have any outside influences that you can't control for. And one of those things, one of those places, well, the best place for that is is a cluster of galaxies because they're all in the same environment and they've had a they've been involving in that same environment for a long time. And uh, so the Virgo cluster is is the best for this because it's only it's within 35 megaparsecs, which is about 30, say 40 times the distance to the nearest galaxy, which is you know very close by. You can actually observe individual globular clusters around uh, around uh, uh, galaxies within this within this cluster. So it's a really good place to go looking, and that's we've uh, we've got about 40 hours of time on two different telescopes to uh, to get data for for this for the Virgo cluster and uh, we're going to be looking for exactly this we're going to be looking for uh, we're going to be looking at galaxies that are very very large because in clusters of galaxies that's where elliptical galaxies grow to their largest because there's so much material to to you know to uh, grow them so to, so that they can accrete a lot of material to to grow them quite large and they, but there's also smaller galaxies in that environment. So you can look at a range of um, a range of uh, masses of, of elliptical galaxies, and and see what see if there's any any uh, you know connection between the mass of the galaxy and the dark matter, and uh, well you know whether there's the requirement for dark matter at all. I mean we're not sure yet what we're going to find. Oh great! So um, what two telescopes are you using? Now, for this one, um, the, one of the telescopes is the, the VLT, the Very Large Telescope in the north of Chile. It's uh, an eight-meter uh, telescope. There's, the Very Large Telescope is actually four telescopes. Three of them are eight-meter in diameter. The largest telescopes in the world are 10, 11 meters, so these things are you know, up there with the largest. Um, and there's an instrument called VMOS, which is uh, uh, VMOS is the very large telescope infrared, I think the I stands for, uh, multi-object spectrograph. And so what you can do with that is you, with a, well, the spectra, uh, when you shine light through a, through a prism or, uh, you, or through a slit, you end up, you break that light up into, uh, into the, the rainbow, the, the spectrum. And in, 
in that spectrum, you see absorption and emission lines from from the from the stars. So, what, uh, and absorption lines are the atmospheres of the stars absorbing a particular wavelength of light, and the emission lines are the same thing, except they're emitting a specific wavelength of light. And with that, what you can do is you can see how fast the the clusters are moving. Sorry, the yeah, the globular clusters are moving towards or away from you based on the redshift of the of the the uh, these lines. So that's how you can work out the the dynamics of the of the system, and that's what we're going to be doing. So that's one of them. And there's 27 galaxies we're going to look at. Uh, there's something like 11,000 objects in total we want to look at. That's because of uh, you know with all of these things. We're trying to find as many globular clusters in these in the around these uh, galaxies as we can. So, uh, and then the other telescope, I am going to draw a blank right here, <laughs> and uh, I have completely forgotten. I can't believe I have, but I've completely forgotten. Oh no, sorry, that's right. There's a there's a, the other the other one is the the four meter Blanco telescope, ah. which is on. Uh, um, another mountain in Chile at a different observatory in Chile, um, and that's a four-meter telescope. But with that one, we're uh, only doing imaging, so we're only taking uh, images and not doing this spectroscopy. So with that, what we can do is uh, the globular cluster systems of elliptical galaxies appear to have a very specific uh, color distribution, which we don't quite understand why yet, but it's it's going to tell us something about the the history of of how these objects formed and uh, how the, the, the how the uh, host galaxies of these globular cluster systems formed, and that's what we're going to. Well, that's what we're actually in the process of doing now. And I'm I'm uh, looking at I'm looking at uh, two galaxies myself, and uh, one of Tom's and my students is looking at another one, and we've just got two other students to start looking at another two galaxies as well, because there's plenty of them out there, and we just want to know. In general, what these things look like, and we, if we can, if we can look, find out something about the merger history and the, and just the history in general of, of these uh, elliptical galaxies. Oh, great work! That sounds great. Um, I hope you uh, get the results. Well, get some results from it anyway. Um, I'm sure we'll get something. you'll get something or nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the usual. Just on Chile itself, are you able to see? I've always wondered what the uh, what astronomy does for the economy in Chile. Is it recognised as as you know something that contributes to the economy there? Because I'm, I'm sure it would have to, or maybe not. Well, no, no. I, I look I, in detail about the economy. I don't know, but there there is definitely something very interesting about Chile, and that is that it's one of the only countries left that is still putting money into into astronomy. Uh, Australia is doing okay at the moment because they've started uh, putting some money back that that was taken out, uh, you know, over the last, mm. you know, lots of years. Um, and then, but in the last few years, they've started putting some money back into science, which is brilliant. Um, but but Chile is still putting, you know, substantial amounts of money into into uh, astronomy, which is brilliant. And part of the reason for that is that it. It's bringing in a lot of uh, skilled work. A lot of astronomers are coming to, to live here and work here, uh, and so that does. I mean, it definitely helps the economy. I mean, how? I, I mean, I'm not an, I'm not a, a, an econo uh, economist, yeah. but, uh, but but it absolutely it does. It definitely does help. And I mean, some of the, the best telescopes in the world are, are here, and one of the newest telescopes that they're building, or at least just starting to build, is the European Extremely Large Telescope. It's a, a great name. They've gone from the Very Large Telescope to the extremely large telescope eventually it'll be the i don't know yes. hyper extreme <laughs> telescope or something but the um 
but the the European ELT is going to is going to be in Chile on one of the mountains in Chile too. And uh, I mean, the amount of money that that goes into building one of these things. I mean, the original the original amount of money that I saw that it was going to cost to build this was uh, about a billion euro. Wow. Now, whether it's, it's probably come down a lot since then, though, because the size of the telescope has come down, and you know, technology has become cheaper since this. You know, this has been on the drawing board for a long time, so it's probably come down to you know maybe half that, but. I mean, at a guess, um, but you know that's a, that's a lot of money for for a, a country to to you know to spend on on employment for for workers and things. I mean, and the and it'll bring a lot of people from overseas to come in, uh, you know, and it helps the airlines and everybody. So I look, I I imagine it's it's definitely good for the economy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm always pushing for more astronomy everywhere. <laughs> All right. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's finish up with talking about what excites you or what interests you at the moment and it doesn't have to be astronomy what's grabbed you at the moment um just in general well i recently got married which is really nice um and that's that's always a good thing thank you (laughs) yeah about two months ago uh my wife and i when we we came over here together we weren't married at the time we decided we'd get married over here because uh it was uh well a nice excuse to invite all our friends and family from australia to come and visit for one thing and also because it's easier to have our our wedding recognized in Australia than it is if you get married as a foreigner or two foreigners and then try and have it recognized in Chile. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was very nice. Uh, in a, in a, we had that in a, a city called Valparaiso in the, a bit north of here, um, quite near Santiago, the capital. And it's a beautiful city. If anyone is listening that wants to, you know, that happens to be in Chile, then I'd recommend visiting Valparaiso for sure. Um, otherwise, I mean, Astronomically, lots of things are really interesting. I mean, there's um, uh, uh, we've me and uh, some collaborators, one in in Germany and uh, a couple at uh, at University of Concepcion here, um, discovered a, a new collisional ring galaxy uh, recently. And so, if you want to have a look up. Uh, an object called Origa's Wheel, which is what we've dubbed it, um, because Origa is the the constellation of the chariot, oh, and this right. thing is a ring galaxy. So we figured, why not, you know, make it one of the chariot's wheels? And it's a it's a really interesting object that we've looked at uh, both with imaging and spectroscopy, and also one of the guys who I work with here, Rory, he's a, he's a theorist. He does uh, computer simulations mostly, and so he simulated the the formation of this thing in a computer model, and uh, so we've published a couple of papers on that recently. So that's that's another really interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's something that I've never even considered doing. I mean, that's one of the great things about about working in astronomy and science in general, I guess, is that you start off working on something and then you find just something else just takes your interest and you find the reason that we found this object in the first place was we were looking at this monoceros ring thing that I mentioned earlier. Mm. And in the in the background of some of the images of the fields of, from the Subaru telescope that we were using, they just, we just happened to find this object in the background of some of the images. And we were like, well, that looks really interesting. Let's see what it is. I mean, this is, yeah, this is one of the great things about doing yeah. astronomy. And, you know, serendipitous little moments like that. It's brilliant. So, um, yeah, I don't know. What else, what else is there that, that excites me at the moment? I guess uh, I think I was, learning Spanish. Yeah. I was, <laughs> learning Spanish is interesting. <laughs> I was going to say also I noticed on your website that you've got a couple of links to um, some local places in uh, around Sydney, like the Colo River stuff. And 
Yeah, right. Well, thanks for noticing that. Um, yeah, my my father is a very uh, very well. He retired uh, when he was fifty eight. He's now uh, what is he seventy this year, or possibly seventy one this year. And him and his wife, my stepmother, um, are very very heavily involved with a group um, who are working on Pope's Glen uh, Bush. Uh, well, it's called Pope's Glen. Pope's Glen Bush Care Group, I think, is what they called themselves, and Pope's Glen is in the in uh, the Blue Mountains, uh, right near Blackheath. And uh, they, when they moved there, they moved there when they retired, and uh, they found that a lot of the the local bushland was infested with enormous weed problem. Um, a lot of it was holly introduced. There is na- there is native Australian holly, but this wasn't it. This was an introduced, uh, I guess, oh. European holly. And it was taking over the whole of Pope's Glen, which is a beautiful little area with a lovely little creek running through it. And they decided that they'd, you know, go and start pulling out some holly trees until uh, it turned into an enormous, enormous effort. Uh, And me and my brother and, you know, all the local people around that cared uh, came to help. And and it turned into a a once a month thing that they do all the time, you know, every month now. And that's a lot of fun. When I go to Australia uh, and or, and also before we left to come over here, we used to go and help them do that. And, uh, you know, chopping down huge holly trees and poisoning the stumps so they didn't grow back. And then planting native stuff in its place, which was uh, a lot of fun. I actually really enjoy doing that, except you get a lot of cuts and abrasions from the holly trees. But it was, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's a lot of fun. And uh, if anyone wants to go and support that, then uh, please do. Great stuff. All right. Well, we'll, we'll wrap it up. And... Um We'd love to come back and talk to you again, uh, especially closer to the end of your three years <laughs> to see what's happened sure. with, your, with your studies. Um, and sure. you, know, you keep in touch with us. So if you find something, you can come and talk to us about it. Love to hear about it. Absolutely. And, uh, and we wish you all a happy birthday for tomorrow. <laughs> Thank I, you very much. As we were talking about that earlier. So thanks very much, Richard. Hey, what a great interview, eh? I really enjoyed that one and it stretched me quite a bit. Let's go on to talking about our new sponsor, iTelescope. Just a reminder that if you put in the code ASTRO, you get a 25% bonus on top of the credits that you buy. So it's a great opportunity for new and existing users to go online, buy some credits, get some time looking through some fabulous telescopes. Here's clear skies, I hope, for you. And uh, don't forget to use the code ASTRO, A-S-T-R-O. Till next week. Thanks for listening to the Astro Podcast. Why not leave a comment and rating on iTunes so other people can listen in too? If you want to nominate someone to be interviewed, then send an email to alison at astropodcast.com and she'll do her best to make it so.